0: How many people have, have studied the book of Hebrews in some way or form before, or had some background and understanding of some of the elements of the book of Hebrews before they came tonight? So when I say Hebrews 6, what comes to your mind? Uh-oh. <laughs> Panic. <laughs> um, we're going to do Hebrews 5 and 7 uh focus on those ones next week because they really go, go hand in hand together. Hebrews 6 is almost an aside, uh, but it's not an aside that is often forgotten about. It, it contains one of the most um, debatable or um, uh, argued or misunderstood uh, of the challenging passages of all the New Testament, really all the Bible, is, uh, is found in Hebrews 6. And, uh, and what we're going to do tonight is we're going to endeavor to, to dive into that and, and see if we can come away with some kind of understanding uh, about what Hebrews 6 is saying. In, um, in preparing for this, I came across a number of quotes from some, uh, some very wise uh, theologians who've, who've um, attempted to study this passage before. And, and Ray Stedman, someone who I have uh, great admiration for, he wrote the Naughtiest Problem passage in Hebrews. Speaking of Hebrews 6, it says it's an obvious problem passage in the book of Hebrews, if not the whole Bible. It's a passage which has been a battleground for ages. Uh, A man named Ainsley wrote, uh, This is known to be one of the most difficult chapters in the whole canon of Scripture. It has suffered an interpretation more at the hands of its friends than at the hands of its enemies. So people trying to help God out... Uh, have caused often a lot more damage to this passage than uh, than help. Uh, Mr. William Barclay he says it is one of the most terrible passages in Scripture. Isn't that exciting? Um, Mr. Uh, Vincent who uh, who has uh, the author of the Vincent Word Studies, he said the number and variety of explanations are bewildering. In my research, I came up with uh, someone saying that there are 14 different interpretations in this passage. I don't know about that. I think it's higher. There are, there are so many different ways of looking at this passage. There, there are a few main ones with slight variations off of it, but, uh, but nonetheless, there are, are many different interpretations of this passage. Uh, Mr. Hewitt, he said, The difficulty of interpretation cannot be exaggerated. It's not an easy passage. And, uh, J. Vernon McGee, another guy I have a lot of respect for, he wrote, Every reverent person comes to this passage with awe, wonder, and a sense of inadequacy. Well, then I'm all ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, to give you some, uh, understanding of this passage, when I, when I decided to, to go through the book of Hebrews, um uh, and seriously, many months ago, as a study for this, uh, the first passage I began to dive into is Hebrew six, because I knew how difficult it was. Um, I remember going to the Book of Hebrews in a in a small group study once, uh, many years ago, maybe maybe almost ten years ago. Uh, this was one of the passages that we just kept on going round and round and round with. And so I, I knew how much time was going to be required to study it and understand it. And so right from the get-go, I began to study Hebrew 6, this passage. And uh, up to about an hour ago, um, the study continued. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought I was ready, uh, and then about an hour ago I went out for dinner and, and God had some more things He wanted to say to me. And, and so we all a slightly different variation than what I had planned on. Um, but I think it starts to make more sense. Um, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, but this is a passage, though, that has stumped many. In fact, some, some great and wise theologians have said uh, that it's so difficult, we will never understand it, and that the only hope we have understanding it is when we get to heaven. So until then, just put it on the shelf and don't worry about it. What do you guys think of that? Not a good idea. Not a good idea. Because all scripture, uh, Paul says in Timothy, all scripture is for us. And if God chose to include this in his canon, in in the word of God, then there's a reason. There's a reason he wants to say something to us. And so we're going to go and try to dive in and and understand it. But do we have any hope of understanding it in ourselves? No. So I guess we'll have to trust God. guess we'll have to, right? So why don't we pray and... See what he wants to say to us tonight. Heavenly Father, this is a passage that is not an easy passage to grasp, but I look forward to what you're going to say to each of us tonight. And I trust that you have something that you want to say to us, something of value, something significant, something to encourage, maybe even challenge us. But I pray at the end of it, it will be something that leads us into a deeper relationship with you, a deeper walk. And so we dare not try to understand your word in of ourselves apart from you. And I dare not try to teach this apart from you. And so we come to you, depending upon you, to make your word real to us. And I'm excited about what you have in store. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to dive right into the main chunk of the passage that um, is, is of all the debate. It's kind of like, you know, having dessert before the meal sort of thing, right? We want to just get right to it. So here's the, the three verses that uh, Ray Stevin was says the audience, and it starts in Hebrews 6, verse 4, and he says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and who have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. It's a scary passage. Maybe we should just close in prayer right now and <laughs> take the advice of putting it on the shelf and we'll just keep going. This is uh, the third warning in the book of Hebrews. Up to this point, we saw the first warning of not neglecting our salvation. Don't let it just drift past us. And then he kind of expanded on that a bit more in the second warning of of just standing away from it, of being apart from it, and and not really um, entering into the rest of God, not utilizing it. This third warning then uh, follows all that. And what we're going to endeavor to do is take a look at some of the main uh, interpretations, like I said, there's at least 14 different interpretations. However, many of those are just slight variations of a main, very vari- a, a main interpretation. So there's, there's approximately four main or, or popular interpretations out there, and then most of the other variations, most of the other interpretations are variations of those four. So we're going to look at these different ones and and evaluate the. Um, the accuracy or the substance of each of these uh, interpretations. So the first interpretation that we're going to look at is looking at the possibility of losing your salvation. In verse 4, or sorry, verse 6 there, uh, the writer is saying to them that have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them to, again to repentance. Meaning that uh, when a Christian or the believer, they commit some kind of grievous sin, One where they have fallen away, fallen from grace or fallen from God. And as a result of that grievous sin, it is now hard to renew them. Is that what it says? It is impossible to renew them again through repentance. Why? Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open chain. Since it is impossible to come back because to do so would require Jesus to die again on the cross. And is that happening? Is He going to die again on the the cross? Not going to happen. And so therefore, it's an impossible situation. So meaning that if you lose your salvation, it's gone. You can't return back to God. Now, we're not going to mess around with this one because this isn't true. Uh, One of the the great errors we make in in studying Scripture is... Is, is trying to interpret Scripture in a very narrow lens, in a very narrow way, in the sense of, uh, I look at a verse and I just let that verse speak, whatever it says, ignoring the rest of Scripture. And one of the things about Scripture is all Scripture agrees with, it, with itself. There isn't conflicting parts of Scripture. They all agree and they are in perfect agreement. And so what we need to do is we need to let other Scriptures sometimes interpret um, some Scriptures. Now, when you're coming and creating a a theology, do you start with an extremely difficult passage and come away from that with a major theology or major major doctrine? Would you do that? Would you start with something difficult and complex? No. No. Why not? What's the danger of that? Of developing a doctrine based solely on a difficult text? Yeah, it's really open to misinterpretation. And if you misinterpret on a difficult text, it's gonna throw you off everywhere else. So what would be a better way? Rather than developing a doctrine or theology on a difficult text, where might you wanna start? On a simple text. And so what we have here is we're gonna list, I'm gonna list 16 different (coughs) texts, very simple. you don't have to write out the whole verse. You may want to just write the references down. Um, but they're just simple texts, I think, that emphasize the believer's security. And, and like I said, many years ago when I was studying through Hebrews, this was the, the debate. Can a believer lose his salvation? And, and they start with a difficult text, and you end up in all kinds of trouble here. But let's start with some simple ones. So, for example, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. One of those, those great popular verses. And it says that, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that none may boast. Wonderful truth. Glorious truth. And, and I, I find it so amazing that we do nothing to earn our salvation. And yet, if we don't do enough or we're not uh, behaving the right way, we're in danger of losing something you couldn't do anything to earn in the first place. So if you're not, if you're if you're saved by grace, you've got to be kept by grace as well. It's not by works. So if you can't earn it by works, how can you lose it by your works? Doesn't add up, doesn't make sense. Another one is John 6, verse 37, which says that the, all that the Father uh, gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Jesus promises to never reject you. All that my Father gives me, I receive gratefully, and I will never send them away. So is God ever going to send you away? Is He ever going to reject you? Never. Never. John 10, verses 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give give eternal life to them. It's interesting. If you lose eternal life, if you lose your salvation, is it eternal? No. If it comes to an end, it's not eternal. Eternal, by definition, has no beginning and no end. And so I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Really, what this verse should read is they will never, 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 never perish. It is such a strong word, this never. It is never now and never in perpetuity. Never going forward. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So no one can remove you from Jesus' hand, and no one can remove you from the Father's hand. You are the safest place you can imagine. Now it's interesting, this is where that argumentative or smart-aleck Christian says, Well, um, no one can snatch me from God's hand, but what? But I can run away. I can jump out of his hands. I can leave him. Well, let's see if that one holds. First Peter 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. What does imperishable mean? It's never going away. So our salvation is imperishable. It's never going away. It's undefiled. If you lose your salvation, what have you done to it? Would you not have defiled it? Hence the reason you lost it. Can't defile it. Will not fade away. It's not going anywhere. Reserved in heaven for you. And here's the big one. Who are protected by the power of God. You see, the great thing about, or a great mistake I think we make when we talk about losing our salvation is the idea that it's up to me to keep it. It's up to me to maintain it. And who's the one that keeps you and saves and protects your salvation? God is. Do you think he's able to do so? Do you think he's strong enough? Absolutely. Absolutely. Another one, Romans 8, 31 to 39. Uh, a great passage, we're not going to read all the verses, but it you know, begins, what should we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? And then he goes on, he says, For I'm convinced that neither life nor death, I mean, that, that in itself sums it up, right? I mean, what is outside of life and death? Nothing. So nothing, I'm convinced nothing can separate you from the love of God, neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, and if you still haven't got it, nor any created thing. Guess who that includes? Satan? Me. Me. So the argument that I can jump out of his hand, that I can leave him, that I can separate him from uh, myself from him, No, you can't. You aren't big enough. You're not strong enough. Sorry to break the news to you, tiny little Christian, but you can't do it. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, Jesus our Lord. Um, Isaiah 43, going back to the Old Testament for a bit. uh, Here God says, I, even I, am the Lord. And there is no Savior besides me. It is I who declared and saved and proclaimed. And there is no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. Even from eternity, I am He. And there is none who can deliver, deliver, out of my, deliver you out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? God saved us, right? He's the one that did the work. Then who can reverse it? The only person that could reverse it is who? Is God. And he's already made the claim he's not going to reverse it. Another great verse, Jeremiah 33 to 20 20 and 21. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will uh, not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne. Who's he referring to there? Jesus. If you can break God's covenant, then God's covenant with David will be broken. Namely, who will no longer be Lord? Jesus. If we can break the covenant, if we can lose our salvation, Jesus isn't Lord anymore. Now why do I bring up the covenant? Well, because Jeremiah 32, the chapter before, God says, and I will make an everlasting covenant. How long does an everlasting covenant last for? Forever. A long time, right? I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear in them so that they will not turn away from me. Part of the covenant, God's saying, is I will love you, I will protect you, but I will put it in your heart so you don't even walk away from me. That's why the authentic believer, the true uh, faith, the person who put true faith in God, that's a faith that goes on and on and on. It never ends. It keeps going because God makes sure of that. And if, if that doesn't happen, if you lose your salvation, then God has failed on His end of the deal. He's broken His covenant. And guess who's no longer Lord? Well, there's more. Romans eleven twenty nine. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. All sales are final. There are no refunds or returns or exchanges. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that He, God, who began a work in you, will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. If you lost your salvation, does that mean God began to work? If you, if you had it at one point, He began the work. But if you lose it, will He be able to complete it? No. But He will. He promises us that. Hebrews ten fourteen. For by one offering, He's perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So how long are we perfected? Not, it doesn't say you are perfected until you lose your salvation. It says you are perfected for all time. This from the same writer who gives us the warning in chapter 6. So if he says something in chapter 6 that talks about losing your salvation, then why say this the way he does in chapter 10? doesn't add up. Second uh, Timothy 1, verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him until that day. God's the protector of this. The only reason we have security is because God gives it to us. He says, I'm with you. I'll protect you. Jude 1, 24, 25, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, God will make sure you don't stumble. And to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless and with great joy. That's all God's work. That's what He's doing. Romans 14, 4. He says, Who are you to judge a servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And make no mistake, he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. It's a guarantee. God will look after him. 2 Corinthians 1, 19 to 22 talks about how we've been sealed um, through having received the Holy Spirit. And then again in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit. You're not going anywhere. You are eternally safe if you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you have put your faith in Him, you You are as safe as safe can be. So the idea, the interpretation that a believer can lose his salvation, well, what is it? Is that a good, appropriate one? No. It doesn't pass the test. It fails. Because there are so many other verses that, that contradict that. That if, if Hebrews 6, 4-6 was saying you can lose your salvation, then how do you interpret the bucket loads? And I only gave you a short list. I had a, I mean, we're, we're stuck for time, so I can't give you all the verses. But this is a short list of verses that, that speak to the fact that we are safe in Christ. Yes, Marco. Does the word stumble mean become unsafe? Is that what it means? Because you say God won't let us stumble. Does that mean? Does stumbling mean we're unsaved in the translations? Or? Um, talk about yeah, the one who is able to keep you from stumbling. Uh, I don't know if that's specifically saying about losing your salvation, but I think it, it, it shows more to your standing with God. Because think about it. Whenever somebody met with God in the Old Testament, what was their posture? Face first in the ground, right? Eat some dirt for a while. Why? You're with God. And show some respect. And yet time and time again in the New Testament, he, he gives us a whole different posture. Where now we stand in the presence of God. Well, what does that tell us? I think that says a lot about the relationship we have with him. Uh, many years ago in the White House, uh, when John F. Kennedy was president, uh, you know, they had the Secret Service everywhere. But there is this one person that would just run by them every time and they wouldn't do anything. And he would, you know, have this determined look and he would run right past the guards and then he would run right up to the president and sit under his desk. Who was that person? His son. And he'd be in the meeting, middle of a a meeting with other world leaders and JFK Jr. would just run right in. And he'd do that anytime he wanted. Why? Because he's the son. Even though he's in the presence of this mighty man, he would do that. Well, we stand now in the presence of God. And he's able to make us stand. To keep us from stumbling so we can stand in his presence. Because of the relationship we have with him now. We're, We're a son. We're a daughter. Now, I share this with you so we can roll this out. But let me give you a word of advice from someone who's fought the wars. It is not worth getting into debate with somebody about losing your salvation. You won't get anywhere with it. You will, you will chase your tail, you will you will put these scripture verses up. And I always I'm amazed how people say, well, it's not about works. It's not about works when it says they're gonna lose your salvation. But inevitably, they always raise, well, what if they kill someone? What if they do this. What if they do that? And every, all their illustrations, examples involve actions, involve works. And it's just never going to work. It's never You're never going to win that argument. It's, it's a pointless, fruitless discussion. So I, I encourage you, if somebody gets into, wants to get into a debate with you over losing your salvation, whether you can or can't, don't waste your breath. And here's why. Here's a better way. Get into them, with them, a discussion about the cross and righteousness. Because if you can understand what really happened at the cross, where Jesus died for your sins and we died with Him, the um, unregenerate sinner who is in Adam died, and Christ raised up someone brand new who is holy and righteous, and all that was done by God's work on the cross. If they understand the cross and righteousness, then they will understand the eternal security of the believer. And so, this really is the is a secondary truth. So. My advice to you is avoid this like the plague and focus in on the cross and what Jesus did to us and for us. Does that make sense? Any questions then on this first one? Made the case? I mean, the reason I gave you 16 verses was to show you the overwhelming evidence of simple verses that speak to the fact that we're safe in Christ. All right, let's move on to the the next interpretation then. The second one is a warning to those who profess, but do not possess. So we look at the verses before, in beginning in verses 4 and 5, where the, the, the writer in the book of Hebrews is, is addressing and letting us know who he's talking to. And so this warning, or this interpretation says, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and here they've been, been enlightened, but they've only seen the light, they've never really become the light. Remember, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he says, and behold, you are going to become the light of the world. Well, what he's saying here is that they've been enlightened. They've seen the light, but they've never really become the light. And they've tasted of the heavenly gift, but they never really owned it. They never really took ownership of it. And, and they've been made partakers, but, but they're not possessors. I mean, they've, they've sampled it, but again, it's not theirs. And they have tasted, but they've not eaten the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. So what this interpretation is saying, basically, is that they've, they've come close to it, but they've never really entered in. That then on the surface they look good, they play the part, but the reality is they're not true believers. They're not true Christians. Does that make sense? Yes. Partakers mm-hmm. partakers mean that share Well, but it all depends on how we understand the word We'll, we'll get to that in a second But this, you know What, what this interpretation is saying Is this word partaker Is, is I'm, I'm, I'm kind of I go to a, a buffet And I may partake of something But I don't really own it I don't possess it It's not really mine It's not rightfully mine I'm borrowing it But it's, it's not mine and, and so and a way to illustrate, I guess, is this guy here. Remember that song, one of these is not like the other in Sesame Street? <laughs> well, here we got four penguins, mm, not quite. <laughs> we got three penguins and a guy in a penguin suit, right? This, this poor goose. And, um, and so he's not a real penguin, even though he's trying to look the part, even though he's trying to play the part. And so this is the idea that this this interpretation is saying, is that this warning is for this goose. That he has come close, but he's not a penguin. He's still a goose. He may dress the part. He may even try to waddle like a penguin and swim like a penguin and, I guess, sing like a penguin, but he is still a goose. And so he's a professor. He professes to be a believer, but the reality is he doesn't possess that true faith. Does that make sense? Well, that's right. So let's let's see if there's some supporting passages that would that would back this up, that would would support this idea. And so we looked at in the first week about the four different soils, and that rocky soil, soil number two, that that had the Christian or had the, the believer. At least we thought he was a believer. Because the, the Word of God came, and immediately there, there seemed to be a plant. It's It sprouted up quickly, and everything on the surface looked good. But what was that plant missing? There was no root. It never penetrated into the soil. And the soil was a picture of the heart. And so we saw that is evidence that they on the surface look to be like a Christian. They look to be a believer, but they never had real faith. They never, never really rooted into, uh, into God or God never rooted into them, into their heart. And so when tribulation came, they quickly wilted away because they had no water, they had no roots. And so that would, that would fit this category. Someone who professes to believe and on the surface, they temporarily look like they believe. But the reality was there was no heart. So do you think that the person, that that person, deep, deep in, in their hearts, they will know that they don't believe? Or do you think that they... Could be deceived? Mm-hmm. Well, I think they could be deceived. And, and we'll see that in a second here with, with one of the passages. That I guess it is possible. Um, and that's, that's somewhat frightening. That's somewhat frightening, I think. Um, but I think... If we're, if we're serious about it and we go before God, He'll let us know. Uh, so I think we could be deceived, but, but there is a way to not be deceived, and, and I'll explain that when I get to it. Uh, there are other passages. One other passage is the, the passage of the wheat and the tares, and how the wheat and the tares they grow up together. And when you look at the, the context of it, it's growing up within the church, and that there's wheats and tares in the church. And that uh, even more frightening because it speaks to the fact that there are people within our churches that profess to be believers but are not. They do not actually possess the Holy Spirit. Now we'll look at two passages in more detail than, than the other ones. But in Matthew seven thirteen 13-14, Jesus talks about the narrow gate and the wide gate. And he says, enter the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now the traditional interpretation of this passage has been the wide gate is the world and the narrow gate is Christianity. And we need to be careful because if we go down the wide gate it leads to destruction. That's the reason why you've got to find Jesus and go down the narrow gate. But that doesn't quite make sense if you look at this passage. It says here that the, the gate is wide, is the, the gate that's wide and broad leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. If this wide way was the world, then do we need to enter it? No. We already are there when you're born. There's no choice to enter the, the world. you're just in the world. So there isn't an option to enter into it. But yet... There are many who enter into it. There's a choice that they decide to go down this path. And really what the wide gate is saying is talking about religion. Trying to uh, find a way to work your way to God in what you do. In fact, the, the passages that come afterwards talks about false preachers and false teachers and false prophets. And beware of those people who will lead you astray. And they lead you astray by pointing you to religion. And so the wide gate is trying to enter in through a works-based religion, or maybe even more specifically, a works-based Christianity. But the narrow gate is small, and it's, it's it's the one that leads to life. Well, that's life in Christ. That's trying to find life in Him through a relationship with Him that's based solely on my faith in Him as my Savior, Lord, and life. Does that make sense? So there are people who profess to be Christians, but they are on the wide way, the the broad way that leads to destruction. They're they're not. Just a few verses later on in the same chapter, Jesus goes on and says, "...not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles?" And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's frightening. There are many people who are going to come up to Jesus in in the end, in the day of judgment, and say, Lord, Lord, we've done all these wonderful things in your name. They weren't doing it in the name of Allah. They weren't doing it in the name of Buddha. They weren't doing it in the name of Hare Krishna or Oprah or anyone else, they were doing all these works in the name of Jesus Christ. They were prophesying. They even did miracles, signs and wonders they did. And what was Jesus' answer to you? Get out, go away, depart from me. Why? Because I never knew it wasn't. I knew you once and I don't know you anymore. It wasn't, I knew you once, and then you did this, and you really ticked me off, and so you got to get out. It's, I never knew you. You were never in me. Our heart was never joined. We were never one. You never came to me. You did all those works, but you were apart from me. And there are many people who are here. Now, you asked, can I know if I'm one of these people? Well, these people are deceived because they're basing it on their works. They look at what they're doing and saying, Aha, I must be okay. Rather than looking to Jesus to say, Am I okay? Does that make sense? Charles Templeton. Except I don't think he made it this far. (laughs) I think Charles Templeton is like the the rocky soil. Um, There will be many TV evangelists, I'm guessing, that will find themselves in this boat they will get to heavens and thinking wonderful i i was on tv ministry for 30 years i should just breeze right in in the first class section and jesus is going to say who are you i don't know who you are you've never been with me your name isn't in this book but i did all these things don't you i my ratings are great we had this snazzy program and people support us and countless people were saved as a result. Yeah, that's true, but it had nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. I don't know you. So we'll see those people. Yes, Danielle. So, would that be Yeah, the will of my father isn't, don't turn that into another work-based, performance-based system. What the will of his father is to believe, right? It is to know Jesus. That's his desire. When he talks about obedience, he's talking about faith, trusting in him. So these people, they weren't obedient. They weren't obedient to the will of the father. They did the things that they thought they were supposed to do. They just lacked one thing. Faith in God, faith in Jesus. Which happened to be the only thing that matters. So, did they do the, the things for themselves? Well, it doesn't say in this passage why they did it, but they didn't. They did it out of their own flesh, in the name of Christ, but they didn't trust Him to do it because they didn't know Him. It was all out of their flesh. It's, it's all it's a matter of heart too, because like if. Like if, if a person has their own belief system but but they really want to know that sure. he will oh yeah make himself real and absolutely. show them the way the Absolutely, weight, right? absolutely. And so really what this passage kinda does is other then blow up the remote is um <laughs> is it causes I, I think us to take a moment of you know reflection, self reflection and say, God, am I your child? Do I know you? Have I put my faith in you? Or have I put my faith in my works? And it just causes us a moment to take inventory. To check to see if we're of the faith. And, and, and really in on this, the narrow path. Or are we on the broad path? So, there does seem to be passages that would support this view. Um, just these, yep. like, you that kind of... Like, how Cain and Abel like when they were going to when they went to present the offerings to God and and one was acceptable and the mm-hmm. other? Yeah, that's another yes. one, yeah. Yeah. So Abel would be be someone who did it by faith, where Cain he presented his own works, the stuff he grew, the stuff that he toiled over, his own stuff, and, and he tried to do it in the name of God, but God said, I don't want anything to do with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we seem to have passages that support this view. There, we do know there are people who profess to be Christians but are not, like Charles Templeton and others. Um, but now the question uh, surrounds the idea about the, the wording and how we interpreted those different words, the, the tasted and the uh, partakers and the enlightened. Are we accurate in that understanding of those words? So let's take another look at those, those phrases again. So once been enlightened, so we said, you know, those who have been enlightened, but they never really became the light. Well, in Hebrews ten thirty two, and then again in Ephesians one eighteen, the same word about being enlightened is being used in reference to who? To a believer. So if we're going to be, you know, intellectually honest with ourselves, if we're going to be honest with how we interpret scripture, we don't get to pick and choose how we want to apply words and say, well, this word here applies to this group, but over here using the exact same way we're going to apply it to someone else just because it doesn't fit our paradigm or we don't like what it has to say. Um, So this word enlightened is also referring to someone who is the light of the world, the believer. Not only that, this word "once" here, "once been enlightened," is a very powerful word. It, it speaks about the fact that it's once for all time. So that this person who has been enlightened and is enlightened is still enlightened, is the light of the world. World. So they they are talking in reference to a believer, an authentic Christian. The next one we had was they tasted, but they never really ate. They never really to uh, um enveloped or or really took it into themselves it was something that was outside close but not quite well in hebrews 2 verse 9 uh, just a few chapters earlier in the same book by the same writer he used the word taste when it talks about jesus tasted death and he used the exact same word the word is guamai it sounds like eating doesn't it it's all gooey mm-hmm. that's how i remember it um and so he's talking about it. Now, it means to taste and to eat. So it's not just like it was on my tongue and away we go. It is something that has entered my mouth and then I eat it. I swallow it whole. Just like Jesus. Did he just taste death, but, but really it was apart from him? No. He tasted it. He ate it. He took it in. He faced it square on. It became part of him. And it, it was necessary in order for him to overcome death. And so just as Jesus tasted death, when the writer, same writer, uses it just a few chapters later, talking about how we have tasted the Holy Spirit, how we have tasted His gifts, it's talking about more than just tasting but not eating. It is actually referring to eating as well. And then finally we said, well, there are those who are partakers, but they never possess. Well, again, same writer, just a few chapters earlier in Hebrews 3, 1 and verse 14, he spoke of Christians, other believers, who are partakers. Fellow brethren, partakers in Christ. And so, when he's talking about partakers, he is talking about possessors. Not only that, but even just a few verses before, so Hebrews five twelve, the last verse of chapter 5, really just a connection in the chapter 6, the writer was saying that they ought to be teachers by now. So this group that he's referring to, that he's speaking to, he says you ought to be teachers. Would you want an unbeliever to be a teacher? No, not at all. So why would he say you guys as unbelievers, as professors but not possessors you ought to be teachers does that make sense no so who are we talking about what kind of person is this warning for is it is it one a warning for a professor but not a possessor no it's referring to who christians well that's to send a chill up your spine because that means it's for who for us so the second interpretation a warning to those who profess but do not possess doesn't pass either any questions on this one well so the warning now is for the believer so let's Let's move on a little bit, and there's a third interpretation, and this is the interpretation that I used to believe for a long time. What was the key word there? Used to. I used to hold to this one, and this is saying that it's an impossibility. That what the writer is doing is he's using a um, a, a, a argument or a, a way to, to a logic argument or a logic device to prove a point, and it's called uh, reduction ad absurdum or reductio ad absurdum if you knew Latin and yes and I don't. So, but basically what it is, is it's a reduction to absurdity. I'm going to present a case that is so ridiculous that you will see that the proposition doesn't make sense. So an example of this would be if I proposed to you that raising taxes brought more money into the government Um, That would be the proposition. A way to refute that would be to say, if we raise taxes to 100% of someone's income, nobody would work. And therefore, income would be zero, uh, economy would just shut down, uh, and there would be no money coming into the government. So the idea of raising taxes always means more money coming in is ridiculous. So it's a reduction to absurdity. Do you understand the, the idea? You probably use it many times in, in just simple conversations. If this is true, well, then let's take it to an extreme to see if it holds, holds any water. And if it doesn't hold water at the extreme, then it's then the, the initial proposition doesn't make sense either. Does that make sense? So what he's going to do now is he's going to create this, um, this logic scenario to kind of make a point. So the, the writer of Hebrews... What he's going to say in this interpretation is actually trying to prove that the believer can't lose his salvation. So in the King James Version, it is impossible appears in verse 4, and it says, For it is impossible, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing that they crucify themselves, the Son of God, afresh and put him in the open chain. It's just, it's ridiculous. He's trying to create this scenario that just doesn't make sense. And it all really hinges on the word if, and then seeing they, or since they crucify. And so what he's saying, you know, if that were to happen, then this would have to happen. And that's never going to happen, so therefore, this can't happen. Meaning, you can't fall away, because then you can never be saved again. And and now, you are are lost and, and saved by your works. And so that just doesn't make sense, so therefore, it can't happen this way. It's an impossible situation, is what this argument saying. Does that make sense? I know we're getting into some nitty-gritty details and so forth, but stick with me. Just basically, in my own words, if they do fall away, and they're lost. The only way for them to come back would be if Christ was crucified again, mm-hmm. which is never going to happen. Exactly. Which means if they fall away, they are lost. And, and that doesn't make sense because then you're saved by your works, which is ridiculous. So, therefore, this scenario is an impossibility. So, that means, or, like, if, like the Bible says, when Jesus says, or oh, you are with me, or you are against me. Are well, I don't know if that's what it's saying. I, 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 what it's saying is, is kind of like what Mark was saying. So, if, if they were to fall away, then they can't return because that means they have to crucify Christ. But that means that if you fell away, you fell away by your works and and you've put God to shame because he couldn't protect you. He couldn't keep you. Well, that's ridiculous. He can do it. So meaning this whole scenario is a hypothetical that can never happen. It's an impossible situation. He's trying to create and show to us this argument saying or this, this interpretation saying as something that cannot happen. So really, he's saying, the writer is saying, the impossibility of losing your salvation is what this interpretation says. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think, I was, I think it, it's saying, if we have been enlightened, it's like impossible to lose your salvation. That's what this interpretation is saying, yeah. Oh. That's kind of well, it is impossible to lose your salvation, absolutely. That's, that was what we looked at in the beginning, right? That was what we looked at the, the, first, the first thought. Is it possible? No, it's not. Once you've been enlightened, once you're saved, God protects you. And, and so how do we interpret then Hebrews 6, 4 to 6? Well, one interpretation is to say that, well, it's an impossible scenario to help further strengthen our, 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 salva- our salvation, or our security. Now, it sounds pretty good because it's addressing the believer. It still fits the idea that you can't lose your salvation. But there's some problems with this interpretation. Uh, the first problem is, based on this word, if they shall fall away. Well, in, in the, another translation, in the New American Standard, there's no such word as if. It's, it's not creating a scenario, but rather talking about something that will, will or may happen. So for them that have fallen away, it's not an if, it's for those that have then it's impossible to renew them again to repentance as they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put in an open chain. So the idea of it being an if scenario doesn't really fit the Scriptures. But there's a much, much bigger problem with this uh, understanding or this interpretation. And that's with the word fallen away. Uh, the word fallen away in Greek is the word peripto. Para meaning with. And pipto meaning to fall. And so it's not fall away, but really para meaning to fall with, to fall alongside to. And so it's not referring to the word apostasy, which would be something of someone rejecting their faith. It's rather someone who's getting stumbling, the one who's who's getting tripped up. That's the one who's fallen into things. Does that make sense? So really, this passage has nothing to do with your salvation. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, if we took a moment and, and looked at the, brighter, uh, the broader scope of things, and we'll do that after, after the break, we'll see that really it's talking more about maturity. And it's not talking about your salvation. So the idea that this writer would now, in the middle of Hebrews, or the beginning of Hebrews 6, would would break into this argument to show the impossibility of losing your salvation just doesn't flow with the logic and the flow of the text. It, It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. So even this interpretation where it was just a logic illustration, well, that doesn't work either. So we've had three possible interpretations, and so far all three have serious problems, enough to say that they're no good. Now, many great men have believed different ones, especially the second one, the, the, those that are professing but not possessing. Many theologians have held to that view, but I think there's just too many problems with them. So is there another view, another interpretation that would, that would allow us to, to see the person that is a Christian, can't lose your salvation, and fits into the context of what the writer is trying to say in, verses, in chapters 5 and 6. you think there's another one? Yeah. There's got to be. And after the break, we'll take a look at it. Okay? This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.